Now, if I may have an interest in your faith and prayers, I hope to be able to say something that will be helpful. Last Saturday evening, a week ago, a great Relief Society conference was held in this tabernacle. It was an inspiring experience to look into the faces of that vast congregation of women of strength and faith and capacity. Now it is likewise an inspiring experience to look into the faces of you, brethren, and feel of your strength, your faith, your loyalty, your devotion. I leave to you the judgment of which was the most attractive audience. (laughs) This has been an hour of inspiration. We've heard much of wonderful counsel that will bless our lives if we'll accept it. I desire to speak of two or three matters. The first has already been dealt with by President Monson and Brother Hillam. I wish to add my endorsement together with a few further operations. I speak also of missionary service. I was recently in London, England, and there we held a meeting with the missionaries serving in that area. Representatives of the British Broadcasting Corporation filmed a part of the service. They're preparing a documentary of our missionary work in the British Isles. Prior to this, I'd been interviewed by a representative of the BBC Radio Worldwide Service. He'd seen the missionaries and noted their youthful appearance. He asked me, how do you expect people to listen to these callow youth? In case some of you don't know the meaning of callow, it means immature, inexperienced, lacking sophistication. I replied to the porter with a smile, callow youth. It is with these missionaries today as it was with Timothy in the days of Paul. It was Paul who wrote to his young companion saying, Let no man despise thy youth. But be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. The remarkable thing is that people do receive them and listen to them. They are wholesome, they are bright, they are alert, they are upstanding, they are clean-looking, and people quickly develop confidence in them. I might have added, they are a miracle. They knock on doors, but not many are at home these days in a city like London. And so the missionaries approach them on the street and engage them in conversation. It is not an easy thing for a sensitive young man or woman to do this. But they come to believe in these further words of Paul to Timothy, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. They recognize that fear comes not from God but from the adversary of truth. And so they develop a capacity to engage people in conversation concerning their work and their message. They and their associates will bring into the Church during this year of 1995 almost 300,000 converts. That is the equivalent of a hundred new stakes of Zion, 
and more than 500 new wards in one year. Callow youth? Yes, they're lacking in sophistication. What a great blessing this is. (laughs) They carry no element of deception. They speak with no element of sophistry. They speak out of their hearts with personal conviction. Each is a servant of the living God, an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their power comes not of their learning in the things of the world. Their power comes of faith and prayer and humility. As we've been reminded, the work is not easy. It has never been easy. Long ago, Jeremiah said that the Lord would gather his people, one of a city and two of a family, and bring them to Zion and feed them with pastors after his own heart. In terms of the individual missionary, the harvest is not great in most instances, but in the aggregate it becomes tremendous. The work demands courage, it demands effort, it demands dedication. It demands the humility to get on one's knees and ask the Lord for help and direction. I throw out a challenge to every young man within this vast congregation tonight. Prepare yourself now to be worthy to serve the Lord as a full-time missionary. He has said, If ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. Prepare to consecrate two years of your lives to this sacred service. That will, in effect, constitute a tithe on the first twenty years of your lives. Think of all that you have that is good—life itself, health, strength, food to eat and clothing to wear, parents, brothers and sisters and friends. All are gifts from the Lord. Of course your time is precious and you may feel you cannot afford two years, but I promise you that the time you spend in the mission field, if those years are spent in dedicated service, will yield a greater investment than any other two years of your lives. You will know, come to know what dedication and consecration mean. You will develop, develop powers of persuasion which will bless your entire life, your timidity, Your fears, your shyness will gradually disappear as you go forth with boldness and conviction. You will learn to work with others, to develop a spirit of teamwork. The the cankering evil of selfishness will be supplanted by a sense of service to others. You will draw nearer to the Lord than you likely will in any other set of circumstances. You will come to know that without His help you are indeed weak and simple, but that with His help you can accomplish miracles. You will establish habits of industry. You will develop a talent for the establishment of goals of effort. You will learn to work with singleness of purpose. What a tremendous foundation all of this will become for you in your later educational efforts and your life's work. Two years will not be lost. It will be skills gained. You will bless the lives of those you teach and their posterity after them. You will bless your own life. You will bless the lives of your family who will sustain you and pray for you. And above and beyond all of this will come that sweet peace in your heart 
that you have served your Lord faithfully and well. Your service will become an expression of gratitude to your Heavenly Father. You will come to know your Redeemer as your greatest friend in time or eternity. You will realize that through His atoning sacrifice, He has opened the way for eternal life and an exaltation above and beyond your greatest dreams. If you serve a mission faithfully and well, you will be a better husband. You will be a better father. You will be a better student, a better worker in your chosen vocation. Love is of the essence of this missionary work. Selflessness is of its very nature. Self-discipline is its requirement. Prayer opens its reservoir of power. And so, my dear young brethren, resolve within your hearts today to include in the program of your lives service in the harvest field of the Lord as a missionary of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, brethren, I pass to another subject. Missionary work is concerned with providing saving ordinances to our Father's living children throughout the world. Temple work is primarily concerned with service in behalf of the sons and daughters of God who have passed beyond the veil of death. God is no respecter of persons. If the living in all nations are deserving of the saving ordinances of the gospel, then those of all past generations must likewise be deserving. Our people cannot partake of all of the blessings of the gospel unless they can receive their own temple ordinances and then make these ordinances available to those of their kindred, dead, and others. If this is to happen, temples must be available to them. I feel very strongly about this. Back in 1954, before I was a general authority, President McKay called me into his office and told me of the planned construction of the Swiss temple. He gave me an assignment to find a way by which the temple ordinances could be administered to those of various languages without multiplying the number of temple workers. Since that time, I have had much to do with these sacred buildings and the ordinances administered therein. We now have 47 working temples. Eight of these are in Utah, 16 in other areas of the United States, two in Canada, and 21 outside of North America. 28 of the 47 have been dedicated since I came into the First Presidency in 1981. In addition, four have been rededicated after very extensive remodeling. We now have six more under construction, located in Mount Timpanogos in Vernal, Utah, St. Louis, Missouri, Hong Kong, Preston, England, and Bogota, Colombia. We've announced seven additional temples for Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic, Madrid, Spain, Guayaquil, Ecuador, Recife, Brazil, Cochabamba, Bolivia, Nashville, Tennessee, and Hartford, Connecticut. And we are working on the possibility of another in Venezuela. After working for years to acquire a suitable site in the Hartford area, 
during which time the Church has grown appreciably in areas to the north and south, we have determined that we will not at this time build a temple in the immediate area of Hartford, but rather we will build one in the area of Boston, Massachusetts, and another in White Plains, New York. In other words, there will be two to serve the needs of the people where originally it was planned one would do. We have beautiful sites in both of these new locations. We apologize to our faithful saints in the Hartford area. We know you will be disappointed in this announcement. You know that we and your local officers have spent countless hours searching for a suitable location that would handle the needs of the saints of New York and New England. While we deeply regret disappointing the people in the Hartford area, we are satisfied that we have been led to the present decision and the temples will be located in such areas that those of you who reside in the Hartford area will not have too far to drive. Additionally, we are working on six other sites in six more areas. It is a tremendously ambitious program. I have a burning desire that a temple be located within reasonable access to Latter-day Saints throughout the world. We can proceed only so fast. We try to see that each temple will be in an excellent location where there will be good neighbors over a long period of time. Real estate prices in such areas are usually high. A temple is a much more complex structure to build than an ordinary meeting house or stake center. It is built to a higher standard of architecture. It takes longer and costs more. The work is moving about as fast as we can go. It is my constant prayer that somehow it might be speeded up so that more of our people might have easier access to a sacred house of the Lord. Brigham Young once said that if young people really understood the blessings of temple marriage, they would walk all the way to England if, if that were necessary. We hope they will not have to go anywhere near that far. These unique and wonderful buildings and the ordinances administered therein represent the ultimate in our worship. These ordinances become the most profound expressions of our theology. I urge our people everywhere, with all of the persuasiveness of which I am capable, to live worthy to hold a temple recommend, to secure one and regard it as a precious asset, and to make a greater effort to go to the house of the Lord and partake of the Spirit and the blessings to be had therein. I am satisfied that every man or woman who goes to the temple in a spirit of sincerity and faith leaves the house of the Lord a better man or woman. There is need for constant improvement in all of our lives. There is need occasionally to leave the noise and the tumult of the world and step within the walls of a sacred house of God there to feel His Spirit in an environment of holiness and peace. If every man in this Church who has been ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood were to qualify himself to hold a temple recommend 
and then were to go to the house of the Lord and renew his covenants in solemnity before God and witnesses, we would be a better people. There would be little or no infidelity among us. Divorce would almost entirely disappear. So much of heartache and heartbreak would be avoided. There would be a greater measure of peace and love and happiness in our homes. There would be fewer weeping wives and weeping children. There would be a greater measure of appreciation and of mutual respect among us. And I am confident the Lord would smile with greater favor upon us. Now, brethren, I have one more matter before I conclude, and if I run over time a little bit, I hope you'll excuse me. I desire to present to the priesthood of the Church my appraisal of the present condition of this great organization of which each of us is a part and in which each of us has an interest. I think you're entitled to know that occasionally. I'm grateful to be able to say that the Church is in good condition. It is healthy. It is growing in numbers. As of the end of 1994, our membership stood at 9,025,000, a gain of 300,730 over the previous year. This means that we are adding a million new members each three and a half years, and I am confident that momentum will increase. It is expanding geographically over the world. I believe that it is well managed, but we are not without problems. Too many of our people drift into inactivity. Too many fail to live the principles of the gospel. But with all of this, we have cause to rejoice as to what is occurring. The Church has no debt. I qualify that to the extent that we have some contracts for the purchase of properties where the sellers insist on payments over a period of time. There are resources to ensure that these contracts will be covered in a timely way. In our few business enterprises, some debt is used as a tool of management, but the ratio of debt to assets would be envied by the executives of any large organization. The Church has been living within its means, and it will continue to do so. I am profoundly grateful for the law of tithing. To me, it is a constantly recurring miracle. It is made possible by the faith of the people. It is the Lord's plan for financing the work of His kingdom. It is so simple and straightforward. It consists of 35 words set forth in section 119 of the Doctrine and Covenants. What a contrast with the cumbersome, complex, and difficult tax codes with which we live as citizens. There is no compulsion to pay tithing other than the commandment of the Lord, and that, of course, becomes the best of all reasons. This is the only large society of which I am aware that does not drop from its rolls those who fail to pay what might be considered their dues.
The payment of tithing carries with it the conviction of the truth of the principle. Now, we know that these funds are sacred. We have a compelling trust to use them carefully and wisely. I have said before that I keep on the cadence in my office this genuine widow's mite, too small for you to see, but it's there nevertheless, given me long ago by Brother David B. Galbraith, who at the time was president of the Jerusalem branch of the Church. I keep it as a reminder of the sacrifice it represents, that we are dealing with the consecration of the widow as well as the offering of the wealthy. I thank all who live honestly with the Lord in the payment of their tithes and offerings, but I know that you do not need to be thanked. Your testimony of the divinity of this law and of the blessings that flow from its observance is as strong as is my testimony. Not only are we determined to live within the means of the Church, but each year we put into the reserves of the Church a portion of our annual budget. We are only doing what we have suggested every family do. Should there come a time of economic distress, we would hope to have the means to weather the storm. We recognize the importance of consecrated voluntary service in carrying forward the programs of the Church. We have a veritable army of dedicated people who give freely of their time to assist in the work. Our human resources people indicate that there are 96,484 of these volunteers now serving. They represent the equivalent of 10,000 full-time employees, and their service has an annual value of $360 million. They labor in a missionary or volunteer capacity, in our Church educational system, in our family history organization, in the temples, and in various other departments and offices of the Church. We are deeply grateful and heavily indebted to them for their magnificent contribution. I am confident that the Lord is pleased with their dedicated service. Our program of weekday religious education moves forward. Wherever the Church is organized, the seminary program is put in place. Likewise, our institutes are providing a wonderful service for those of college and university age. During this 1995-1996 academic year, there are more than 483,000 students enrolled in seminaries and institutes. Many of you young men who are here this evening, I venture that almost every one of you is a beneficiary of this wonderful Church program. I'd like all of you to stand just for a moment who are seminary or institute enrollees. Up. Look at that. That says it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I knew you needed that rest. I don't know what I can ask your fathers to stand for. I'll say it before we get through.
We hope that all for whom these programs are available will take advantage of them. Knowledge of the gospel will be increased, faith will be strengthened, and you will enjoy wonderful associations and friendships with those of your own kind. I think of the Prophet Joseph's struggle in getting out the first edition of the Book of Mormon. There were 5,000 copies in that first edition, and its printing was made possible only through the generosity of Martin Harris. You may be interested to know that last year, 3,742,629 copies of the Book of Mormon were distributed. All or substantial parts of the book are printed in 85 languages. We may not be flooding the earth with the Book of Mormon, as President Benson had urged us to do, but let me say that it is no small thing to distribute three and three-quarter million copies in a single year. It was my privilege to preside over the 150th stake of the Church, which was created in 1945, 150 years after the Church was organized. Now, and even 50 years later, there are 2,101 stakes of Zion. 772 new wards and branches were organized during 1994, bringing the total at the close of the year to 21,774 wards and branches. It should be apparent to all why we must construct so many new buildings in which to house our people for worship and instruction. We have 375 new buildings in the course of construction at the present time. They are becoming increasingly costly to build. We hope that you will take good care of them. To you young men, I make a special plea that you do all possible in this regard. We want these facilities used for the purposes for which they are constructed, but we do not want them abused. Utility costs are high. Turn off the lights when the buildings are not in use. Leave no litter about them. Keep the grounds clean and attractive. Wherever one of our buildings is found, it ought to say to those who pass, the people who worship here are people who believe in cleanliness, order, beauty, and respectability. I've already spoken to you about the increase in the number of temples. It is so with every aspect of the program. I see a bright future ahead. I do not discount the fact that we will be faced with problems. This work has always been faced with problems. The work of the adversary continues against it. But we will move forward as those who have gone before us have moved forward. Every man and boy within the sound of my voice tonight has the responsibility to assist in this great work of reaching out and growing stronger. Brethren, thank you for your faith. Thank you for your devotion. We are aware of the great trust which you place in us. We are aware of the sacred trust placed in us by the Lord, and He has likewise placed a sacred trust in each of you 
who holds his divine priesthood. As I've said before, we are all in this together. Each of us has his part in the building of this kingdom. How wonderful, how very satisfying it is to know that each of us can do something to strengthen this, the work of the Almighty. It is true. It is our Father's work. It is the Church of our Redeemer. The priesthood which we hold is a very real and a very precious thing. I leave you my testimony, my love, and my blessing and my gratitude. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. On this beautiful Sabbath morning, I have chosen as my text our unique, three-part, Christ-focused message to the world. First is the divine sonship of Jesus Christ, which is central to understanding the entire plan of salvation. He is the first begotten Son of the Father in the premortal existence and the only begotten Son of the Father on earth. God, the Eternal Father, is the literal parent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and of His other spirit children. When we refer to the divine Sonship of Jesus Christ, we are also referring to His role as a God in the premortal sphere. This firstborn Son of Elohim the Father was chosen and ordained in the primeval councils in heaven to be the Savior of the yet-to-be-born race of mortals. Jesus was also chosen and sent by the Father to organize and create this earth, our solar system, our galaxy, even worlds without number. Jesus Christ was and is Jehovah of the Old Testament, the God of Adam and of Noah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jehovah appeared to and talked to the ancient prophets, when he spoke, he did so on behalf of the Father, and he said what his Father would have said. Jehovah of the Old Testament became Jesus Christ of the New Testament when he was born into mortality. The divine sonship also refers to the designation only begotten Son in the flesh. Ancient and modern scriptures use the title only begotten Son to emphasize the divine nature of Jesus Christ. This title signifies that Jesus' physical body was the offspring of a mortal mother and of an immortal eternal father, which verity is crucial to the atonement, a supreme act that could not have been accomplished by an ordinary man. Christ had power to lay down his life and power to take it again because he had inherited immortality from his heavenly father. From Mary, his mother, Christ inherited mortality or the power to die. This infinite atonement of Christ and Christ's divine sonship go together hand in hand to form the single most important doctrine of all Christianity. Elder Bruce R. McConkie said, quote, We view the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ as the center and core and heart of revealed religion. The Book of Alma declares it is the whole meaning of the law. The second part of our gospel message and central to the Restoration is the divine mission of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon to bring people unto Christ. 
We declare that the heavens opened to Joseph Smith and a pillar of light descended brighter than the noonday sun. In that pillar stood two personages, God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, whose brightness and glory defied all description. The Father spoke, saying, Joseph, this is my beloved Son. Hear him. One of the hallmarks of the calling of the prophet Joseph Smith was his divine education in the writings and prophecies of the ancient apostles and prophets. The writings and teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith read like a seamless gospel fabric woven from the sacred truths of ancient and modern scripture. Joseph Smith was much more than an uneducated plowboy of the American frontier. Rather, he received the greatest heavenly tutorials ever given to man in the process of his divine education. He received direct answer to prayer from God, not from books. After the first vision, he received other visions and numerous visits from angelic ministers. And for years he was taught by these holy angels sent from God out of heaven to teach and instruct him and to prepare him to lay the foundation of this church. The inspiration of the Holy Ghost was likewise fundamental in Joseph's expounding of biblical scripture. He received revelations from Jesus Christ, and the Urim and Thummim provided another means by which Joseph Smith received scriptural instructions. The eternal truths he taught answered a brood of questions that had been in the minds of philosophers for centuries. When one studies the doctrinal teachings revealed to Joseph Smith, that person, if he or she is sincere in the search for truth, will be led to Jesus Christ and his role as our Savior, Redeemer, and Advocate with the Father. In studying these teachings of Joseph about the Savior, uncertainty and doubt flee and hearts are changed. The honest person finds greater meaning in life by the prophet's answers to the philosophical questions of where did we come from, why are we here, where are we going. Because of revelations given to Joseph, the memory veil between this life and our premortal existence becomes almost transparent at times, and the veil between this life and the spirit world becomes thinner causing family ties to become stronger and sweeter and more meaningful as the hearts of the children turn to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers turn to their children. The prophet Joseph taught that the same sociality that we enjoy in this life will continue into the next, giving great comfort to those seeing friends and loved ones depart from this earth. The doctrines of salvation taught by this prophet distill upon our souls as the very dews from heaven. Joseph taught eternal truths that lead those who hunger and thirst for righteousness to the living Christ and to the bosom of God the Father. Like Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon is a divine instrument to draw the reader closer to Christ. It's a collection of writings by prophets who lived in the Western Hemisphere, who believed in Christ and who prophesied of Christ, some of whom associated with Christ during the brief time he visited the Americas after his resurrection. Those ancient American prophets wrote the Book of Mormon for our day. It has withstood every conceivable test by both skeptical and sincere minds. It is not on trial. We are the ones on trial being tested by our acceptance or rejection of its truths, teachings, commandments, and declarations. 
President Ezra Taft Benson reminded us forcefully that if we forget to teach and preach the Book of Mormon, and if we forget to study and meditate on the contents of this Book of Holy Writ, we will be under condemnation. We have a mission and a commandment to declare its contents to the world and to bear testimony of it. Our third declaration is the divine nature of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to prepare the way for the second coming of Christ. This Church has received from on high the restoration of the divine authority to have and to exercise the priesthood of Jesus Christ and to use this priesthood in performing the requisite saving ordinances so that they are recorded in heaven as well as on earth. The restoration referred to was essential to the second coming because a study of ecclesiastical history shows that the original laws had been transgressed, the original ordinances had been changed, and the everlasting covenants had been broken, just as Isaiah had prophesied many centuries before. Furthermore, Paul had warned that the second coming would occur only after a falling away from the original teachings of Christ and the apostles. To prepare the way for the second coming, the restoration took place through Joseph Smith of every necessary doctrine and sacred ordinance given by God to the prophets of past dispensations, including the Christ-focused temple ordinances. We have, in their original form, everything that has ever been brought to earth that is part of the great plan of salvation. Nothing altered. Nothing modified. We believe in the same priesthood authority held by the ancients, the same organization as the primitive church headed by apostles and prophets, the same spiritual gifts, the same ancient scriptures as well as new Latter-day scriptures, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. I pray that we each will see how great the importance is to gain an understanding through diligent and prayerful study of the divine sonship of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, that Joseph Smith's divine mission was to bring about the restoration of the principles and ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ and also the Book of Mormon, which is indeed another witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and that this Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is the Lord's kingdom once again established on the earth preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah I so declare in all humility and testimony, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. My beloved brothers, sisters, and friends, I wish to affirm my love and appreciation to you for your faithfulness and devotion. I earnestly entreat your faith and prayers as I address a most important and holy subject, the divine magnifying and strengthening power that can come to us through priesthood blessings. A priesthood blessing is sacred. It can be a holy and inspired statement of our wants and needs. If we are in tune spiritually, we can receive a confirming witness of the truth of the promised blessings. Priesthood blessings can help us in the small and great decisions of our lives. If through our priesthood blessings we could perceive only a small part of the person God intends us to be, 
we would lose our fear and never doubt again. As a small boy, I remember being intrigued by my grandmother's magnifying glass, which she used in her old age to read and do needlework. When the glass was in focus, everything I looked at was greatly magnified. But I was most intrigued by what happened when the lens concentrated the sunlight on an object. When it passed through the magnifying glass, the sunlight's power was absolutely amazing. This great magnifying effect can be compared to a profound blessing that came to Jacob, who wrestled most of the night for a blessing. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled with a messenger from God until the breaking of the day. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince thou hast power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Jacob received his blessing in this marvelous experience. And as heirs of Abraham through the blood of Israel, we also receive our blessings of divine favor. As the Lord said in the Doctrine and Covenants, For ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh. Therefore your life and the priesthood have remained, and must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. Unlike Jacob, we do not need to wrestle physically much of the night for blessings to strengthen and magnify us. In the Church, blessings are available to all who are worthy through those authorized, even appointed, to give priesthood blessings. Stake presidents, bishops, quorum presidents, and home teachers are authorized to give blessings. Worthy fathers and grandfathers, as well as other Melchizedek priesthood holders, may give blessings to members in times of sickness and when important events occur, such as individual blessings which are part of the continuous revelation we claim as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Elder John A. Widso stated, Every father, having children born to him under the covenant, is to them as a patriarch, and he has the right to bless his posterity in the authority of the priesthood which he holds. We know that the gospel always has and always will be operated through families. Since early biblical times, order has been brought into the house of Israel through family units. The family unit had inherently and internally the natural love and concern and the blood ties to bring a governing peace and stability to the peoples of God. The same is true today for essentially the same reasons No other unit of society is an effective substitute for the ties of love and affection inherent in families. The natural leaders of the family unit are the parents, standing side by side as equals in their loving guidance of their children. 
each parent brings a separate enriching influence. The power of the priesthood should be the dominant influence in family affairs. Priesthood blessings do not just involve men. They bless equally and fully the women and children of the family. Whatever diminishes family order is destructive to the family unit and to society. We are most fortunate. Some men are specifically ordained and authorized by their priesthood office and calling to give blessings and declare our lineage in the House of Israel. The inspired declaration of lineage is an integral part of the blessing. I pay honor and tribute to the noble, faithful men who are our ordained patriarchs. They have not sought this heavy and lonely responsibility. They are often among the most humble and devoted of our brethren. These chosen men live lives worthy of the inspiration of heaven. Patriarchs are privileged to bestow blessings, for they are entitled to speak authoritatively under the inspiration of the Lord. The office of patriarch is an office of the Melchizedek priesthood. It is one of blessing, not of administration. It is a sacred and spiritual revelatory calling, which usually continues for much of the patriarch's life. Our patriarchs devote themselves fully to their callings and do all they can to live in faith and worthiness so that each blessing is inspired. The patriarch's calling becomes a beautiful, sacred, spiritual, unfulfilling experience. As moved upon by the Holy Spirit, the patriarch declares by inspiration the lineage in the house of Israel of the recipient. Together with such blessings, spiritual gifts, promises, advice, admonition, and warnings, the patriarch feels inspired to give. The patriarchal blessing is, in essence, a prophetic blessing and utterance. A patriarchal blessing from an ordained patriarch can give us a star to follow, which is a personal revelation from God to each individual. If we follow this star, we are less likely to stumble and be misled. Our patriarchal blessing will be an anchor to our souls. And if we are worthy, neither death nor the devil can deprive us of the blessings pronounced. They are blessings we can enjoy now and forever. As with many other blessings, patriarchal blessings should be ordinarily requested by the one desiring the blessing. Responsibility for receiving a patriarchal blessing rests primarily upon the individual when he or she has sufficient understanding of the significance of a patriarchal blessing. I encourage all members of the Church, having this maturity, to become worthy and obtain their blessings. By their very nature, all blessings are conditional upon worthiness, regardless of whether the blessing specifically spells out the qualifications. My patriarchal blessing is primarily a guide to the future and not an index to the past. Therefore, it is important that the recipient be young enough that many of the significance of life are in the future. I recently heard of a person over 90 years of age who received his patriarchal blessing. 
It would be interesting to read that blessing. <laughs> the patriarch has no blessing of his own to give. We heard elderly Grand Richards tell of a patriarch who once said to a woman, I have a wonderful blessing for you. But when the patriarch laid his hands upon the head of the recipient, his mind went completely blank. He apologized. I was mistaken. I do not have a blessing for you. It is the Lord who has the blessing for you. The woman came back the next day, and after the patriarch had prayerfully importuned the Lord, a blessing came that mentioned many of the concerns known only to this good sister. All blessings come from God. Our Heavenly Father knows His children. He knows their strengths and weaknesses. He knows their capabilities and potential. Our patriarchal blessings indicate what He expects of us and what our potential can be. Patriarchal blessings should be read humbly, prayerfully, and frequently. Patriarchal blessing is a very sacred and personal but it may be shared with close family members. It is a sacred guideline of counsel, promises, and information from the Lord. However, a person should not expect a blessing to detail all that will happen to him or her or to answer all questions. The fact that one's patriarchal blessing may not mention an important event in life, such as a mission or marriage, does not mean that it will not happen. In order to receive the fulfillment of our patriarchal blessings, we should treasure in our hearts the precious words they contain, ponder them, and so live that we will obtain the blessings in mortality and a crown of righteousness in the hereafter. My own blessing is short and is limited to perhaps three-quarters of a page on one side, yet it has been completely adequate and perfect for me. I received my patriarchal blessing as I entered my early teenage years. The patriarch promised that my blessing would be a comfort and a guide to me throughout my life. As a boy, I read it over and over again. I pondered each word. I prayed earnestly to understand fully the spiritual meaning. Having that blessing early in my life guided me through all the significant events and challenges of my life. I did not fully understand the meaning of my blessing until I gained more maturity and experience. This blessing outlines some of the responsibilities I would have in the kingdom of God on earth. President Heber J. Grant told of the patriarchal blessing he received. <clears throat> that patriarch put his hands upon my head and bestowed upon me a little blessing that would perhaps be about one-third of a typewritten page. That blessing foretold my life to the present moment. Elder John A. Woodsow said, It should always be kept in mind that the realization of the promises made may come in this or in the future life. Men have stumbled at times because promised blessings have not occurred in this life. They have failed to remember that. In the gospel, life with all its activities continues forever, and that the labors of earth may be continued in heaven. 
Besides, the giver of blessings, the Lord, reserves the right to have them become active in their life as suits his divine purposes. We and our blessings are in the hands of the Lord. But there is a general testimony that when the gospel law has been obeyed, the promised blessings have been realized. Close quote. This was well illustrated in my father's patriarchal blessing. He was told in his blessing that he would be blessed with many beautiful daughters. He and my mother became the parents of five sons. No daughters were born to them, but they treated the wives of their sons as daughters some years ago. When we had a family gather, gathering, I saw my father's daughter-in-laws, granddaughters, and great granddaughters moving about, tending the food, and ministering to the young children and the elderly. And the realization came to me that father's blessing literally had been fulfilled. He has indeed many beautiful daughters. The patriarch who gave my father his blessing had spiritual vision to see beyond this life. The dividing line between time and eternity disappeared. The Church is expanding at a tremendous rate. We now have stakes of Zion in a great many countries of the world, and most stakes have at least one patriarch. This growth permits many people across the earth the privilege of receiving patriarchal blessings. As President Joseph Fielding Smith stated, the great majority of those members of the Church are literal descendants of Abraham through Ephraim, the son of Joseph. However, Manasseh, the other son of Joseph, as well as the other sons of Jacob, have many descendants in the Church. There may be some come into the Church in our day who are not of Jacob's blood lineage. No one need assume that he or she will be denied any blessing by reason of being, not being of the blood lineage of Israel. The Lord told Abraham, And I will bless them through thy name, for as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name, and shall be accounted thy seed, and shall rise up and bless thee as their father. Nephi tells us that as many of the Gentiles as will repent are the covenant people of the Lord. Therefore, it makes no difference if the blessings of the house of Israel come by lineage or by adoption. Some might be disturbed because members of the same family have blessings declaring them to be of a different lineage. A few families are of a mixed lineage. We believe that the house of Israel today constitutes a large measure of the human family. Because the tribes have intermixed one with another, one child may be declared to be from the tribe of Ephraim and another of the same family from Manasseh or one of the other tribes. The blessing of one tribe, therefore, may be dominant in one child, and the blessing of another tribe dominant in yet another child. So, children from the same parents could receive the blessings of different tribes. One of the principal reasons for my speaking about this subject is that patriarchal blessings and other blessings testify of the divinity of Christ and the truthfulness of the Church. 
These sacred blessings also strengthen the lives of those worthy persons who receive such blessings. Thus, Father's blessings, patriarchal blessings, and other blessings are a remarkable privilege which can come to faithful members with sufficient maturity to understand the nature and importance of the blessing. These individualized priesthood blessings are a powerful witness of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in seeking to bring exaltation to each of us. They are our personal revelation from God. Our blessings can encourage us when we are discouraged, strengthen us when we are fearful, comfort us when we sorrow, give us courage when we are filled with anxiety, and lift us up when we are weak in spirit. Our testimonies can be strengthened every time we read our patriarchal blessings. Like the images in my grandmother's magnifying glass, we can become stronger. Our talents and ability can be magnified and multiplied. Our understanding can be greatly enlarged and our spirituality can flower. Moroni taught that every good gift cometh of Christ. But the Lord said, What doth it profit of man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? I humbly and prayerfully urge any who for any reason may not have lived so as to realize the fulfillment of the priesthood blessings pronounced upon them to so order their lives as to reclaim those blessings. I charge the faithful members of this Church to seek to understand the full significance of your blessings. Gifts may have been bestowed upon you of which you were unaware. These gifts can be of both a profoundly spiritual and temporal nature. I pray that we may all receive our gifts. In so doing, our understanding, our faith, and our testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ will be increased. I humbly so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Recently, I met an old friend I had not seen for some time. He greeted me with a salutation. How is the world treating you? I don't recall the specifics of my reply, but his provocative question caused me to reflect on my many blessings and my gratitude for life itself and the privilege and opportunity to serve. At times, the response to this same question brings an unanticipated answer. Some years ago, I attended a state conference in Texas. I was met at the airport by the state president, and while we were driving to the state center, I said, President, how's everything going for you? He responded, I wish you'd asked me that question a week earlier, for this week has been rather eventful. On Friday, I was terminated from my employment. This morning, my wife came down with bronchitis. And this afternoon, the family dog was struck and killed by a passing car. Other than these things, I guess everything's all right, he said. <laughs> Life is full of difficulties, some minor and others of a more serious nature. There just seems to be an unending supply of challenges for one and all. Our problem is that we often expect instantaneous solutions to such challenges, forgetting that frequently the heavenly virtue 
of patience is required. The counsel heard in our youth is still applicable today and should be heeded. Hold your horses. Keep your shirt on. Slow down. Don't be in such a hurry. Follow the rules. Be careful are more than trite expressions. They describe sincere counsel and speak the wisdom of experience. The mindless and reckless speeding of a youth-filled car down a winding and hazardous canyon road can bring a sudden loss of control. The careening of the car with its precious cargo over the precipice and the downward plunge that oftentimes brings permanent incapacity, perhaps premature death, and grieving hearts of loved ones. The glee-filled moment can turn in an instant to a lifetime of regret. Oh, precious youth, please give life a chance. Apply the virtue of patience. In sickness, with its attendant pain, patience is required. If the only perfect man who ever lived, even Jesus of Nazareth, was called upon to endure great suffering, how can we, who are less than perfect, expect to be free of all such challenges? Who can count the vast throngs of the lonely, the aged, the helpless, those who feel abandoned by the caravan of life? as it moves relentlessly onward and then disappears beyond the sight of those who ponder, who wonder, and who sometimes question as they are left alone with their thoughts. Patience can be a helpful companion during such stressful times. Occasionally, I visit nursing homes where long-suffering is found. While attending Sunday services at one facility, I noticed a young girl who was to play her violin for the comfort of those assembled. She told me she was nervous and hoped she would do her best. As she played, one called out, Oh, you're so pretty, and you play so beautifully. The strains of the moving bow across the taut strings and the elegant movement of the young girl's fingers seemed inspired by the impromptu comment. She played magnificently. Afterward, I congratulated her and her gifted accompanists. They responded, We came to cheer the frail, the sick, and the elderly. Our fears vanished as we played. We forgot our own cares and concerns. We may have cheered them, but they truly did inspire us. Sometimes the tables are reversed. A dear and cherished young friend Wendy Banyan of Salt Lake City was such an example. Just the day before yesterday, she quietly departed mortality and returned to that God who gave her life. She had struggled for over five long years in her battle with cancer, ever cheerful, always reaching out to help, never losing faith, her contagious smile attracted others to her as a magnet attracts metal shavings. While ill and in pain, a friend of hers feeling downcast with her own situation visited Wendy. Nancy, Wendy's mother, 
knowing Wendy was in extreme pain, felt that perhaps the friend had stayed too long. She asked Wendy, after the friend had left, why she had allowed her to stay so long when she herself was in so much pain. Wendy's response, what I was doing for my friend was a lot more important than the pain I was having. If I can help her, then the pain is worth it. Her attitude was reminiscent of him who bore the sorrows of the world, who patiently suffered excruciating pain and disappointment, but who, with silent step of his sandaled feet, passed by a man who was blind from birth, restoring his sight. He approached the grieving widow of Nain and raised her son from the dead. He trudged up Calvary's steep slope carrying his own cruel cross, undistracted by the constant jeers and taunting that accompanied his every step. For he had an appointment with divine destiny. In a very real way, he visits us, each one, with his teachings. He brings cheer and inspires goodness. He gave his precious life that the grave would be deprived of its victory, that death would lose its sting, that life eternal would be our gift. Taken from the cross, buried in a borrowed tomb, this man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, rose on the morning of the third day. His resurrection was discovered by Mary and the other Mary when they approached the tomb. The great stone blocking the entrance had been rolled away. Came the query of two angels who stood by in shining garments. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Paul declared to the Hebrews, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Perhaps there has never occurred such a demonstration of patience as that exemplified by Job, who was described in the Holy Bible as being perfect and upright and one who feared God and eschewed evil. He was blessed with great wealth and riches in abundance. Satan obtained leave from the Lord to try to tempt Job. How great was Job's misery! How terrible his loss! How tortured his life! Commanded by the evil one to curse God and die, his reply silenced his oppressor. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. What faith, what courage, what trust. Job lost possessions, all of them. Job lost his health, all of it. Job honored the trust given him. Job personified patience. Another who portrayed 
the virtue of patience was the prophet Joseph Smith. After his supernal experience in the grove called sacred, where the Father and the Son appeared to him, he was called upon to wait. At length, after Joseph suffered through over three years of derision for his beliefs, the angel Moroni appeared to him. And then more waiting, more patience was required. Let us remember the counsel found in Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Today, in our hurried and hectic lives, we could well go back to an earlier time. For the lesson taught us regarding crossing dangerous streets, stop, look, listen, were the watchwords. Could we not apply them now? From a reckless road to ruin, stop. Look upward for heavenly help. Listen for his invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will teach us the truth of the beautiful verse, Life is real and life is earnest, and the grave is not the goal. Dust thou art, to dust returneth, was not spoken of the soul. We will learn that each of us is precious to our elder brother, even the Lord Jesus Christ. He truly does love us. His life is the flawless example of one afflicted with sorrows and disappointments, who nonetheless provided the example of forgetting self and serving others. The remembered verse of childhood echoes afresh. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And so does the Book of Mormon. And so does the Doctrine and Covenants. And so does the Pearl of Great Price. Let the scriptures be your guide, and you will never find yourself traveling the road to nowhere. Today, some are out of work, out of money, out of self-confidence. Hunger haunts their lives, and discouragement dogs their paths. But help is here. Even food for the hungry, clothing for the naked, and shelter for the homeless. Thousands of tons move outward from our church storehouses weekly. Even food, clothing, medical equipment and supplies to the far corners of the earth and to empty cupboards and needy people closer to home. I witness the motivation which prompts busy and talented dentists and doctors on a regular basis to leave their practices and donate their skills to those who need such help. They travel to faraway places to repair cleft palates, correct malformed bones, and restore crippled bodies, all for the love of God's children. The afflicted who have patiently waited for corrective help are blessed 
by these angels in disguise. In the words of a well-known song, I wish you could come fly with me. Fly with me to eastern Germany, where I visited last month. As we traveled along the autobahns, I reflected on a time 27 years before, when I saw on the same autobahns just trucks carrying armed soldiers and policemen, barking dogs everywhere, strained on their leashes, and informers walked the streets. Back then, the flame of freedom had flickered and burned low. A wall of shame sprang up, and a curtain of iron came down. Hope was all but snuffed out. Life, precious life, continued on in faith, nothing wavering. Patient waiting was required. An abiding trust in God marked the life of each Latter-day Saint. When I made my initial visit beyond the wall, it was a time of fear on the part of our members as they struggled in the performance of their duties. I found the dullness of despair on the faces of many passers-by, but a bright and beautiful expression of love emanating from our members. In Gerlitz, the building in which we met was shell-pocked from the war, but the interior reflected the tender care of our leaders in bringing brightness and cleanliness to an otherwise shabby and grimy structure. The Church had survived both the war and the Cold War which followed. The singing of the saints brightened every soul. They sang the old Sunday school favorite, If the way be full of trial, weary not. If it's one of sore denial, weary not. If it now be one of weeping, there will come a joyous greeting. When the harvest we are reaping, weary not. Do not weary, by the way, whate'er be thy lot. There awaits a brighter day to all, all who weary not. I was touched by their sincerity. I was humbled by their poverty. They had so little. My heart filled with sorrow because they had no patriarch. They had no wards, no stakes, just branches. They could not receive temple blessings, neither endowment nor ceiling. No official visitor had come from Church headquarters in a long time. The members were forbidden to leave the country. Yet they trusted in the Lord with all their hearts, and they leaned not to thine own or their own understanding. In all their ways they acknowledged Him, and He directed their paths. I stood at the pulpit, and with tear-filled eyes and a voice choked with emotion, I made a promise to the people. I said, If you will remain true, and faithful to the commandments of God. Every blessing any member of the Church enjoys in any other country will be yours. That night, as I realized what I had promised, I dropped to my knees and prayed, Heavenly Father, I am on Thy errand. This is Thy Church. 
I've spoken words that came not from me, but from thee and thy Son. Wilt thou therefore fulfill the promise in the lives of this noble people? Their course through my mind, the words from the psalm, Be still and know that I am God. The heavenly virtue of patience was required. Little by little, the promise was fulfilled. First patriarchs were ordained, then lesson manuals produced. Wards were formed and stakes created. Chapels and stake centers were begun, completed, and dedicated. Then miracle of miracles, a holy temple of God was permitted, designed, constructed, and dedicated. Finally, after an absence of 50 years, approval was granted for full-time missionaries to enter the nation and for local youth to serve elsewhere in the world. Then, like the wall of Jericho, the Berlin Wall crumbled, and freedom, with its attendant responsibilities, returned. All of the parts of the precious promise of 27 years earlier were fulfilled, save one. Tiny Gerlitz, where the promise had been given, still had no chapel of its own. Now even that dream became a reality. The building was approved and completed. Dedication Day dawned. Just a month ago, Sister Monson and I, along with Elder and Sister Dieter Uchtdorf, held a meeting of dedication in Gerlitz. The same songs were sung as were rendered 27 years earlier. The members knew the significance of the occasion marking the total fulfillment of the promise. They wept as they sang. The song of the righteous was indeed a prayer unto the Lord and had been answered with a blessing upon their heads. At the conclusion of the meeting, we were reluctant to leave. As we did so, seen were the waving hands of all, heard were the words, Auf Wiedersehen, Auf Wiedersehen, God be with you till we meet again. Patience, that heavenly virtue, had brought to humble saints its heaven-sent reward. The, the words of Rudyard Kipling's Requiem seem so fitting. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice and humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.